All right, good morning, beloved. Uh, would you please open your Bibles and join me in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be covering verses uh, 6 through 9 today, but for context, I want us to begin reading this morning in verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, here now is the reading of God's living and infallible word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." quite a mouthful. Um, the reason why it is, is that is one sentence in the Greek. Peter just jams all of that together in one sentence. Uh, pretty incredible. Um, I want to answer the question today, how do we have a, a true authentic joy? Not the pasted on one, but, but true, real, authentic joy in the midst of living in a broken world filled with sorrow. I mean, is it even possible to have, as James said, pure joy whenever you face many trials? How can we have authentic joy when I'm experiencing grief in all kinds of various trials? I had someone tell me once that either you're in a trial or you're coming out of a trial or you're heading into a trial. That if you aren't in one yet, just wait. Well, before we kind of answer this question from the text in 1 Peter, because Peter does, I want to remind you about one of my favorite chapters in all the Gospels, Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three memorable parables. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The parable of the lost son. And each of these parables represents salvation and portrays a lost soul um, being forgiven and, and reconciled to God. 
But the reason why I love this chapter so much is at the end of each one of those parables, Jesus paints this beautiful imagery of celebration and tremendous joy at the recovery of that which was lost. And in each story, there's a common response. For example, at the end of the story about the lost sheep, it says in Luke 15, 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the thing I want you to notice is that salvation and joy belong together. Salvation and joy belong together. Being made right with God is cause for great joy. Great joy. And this joy isn't limited to those in heaven. We also can celebrate because we know that the salvation that is already ours will one day be revealed in full at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, your salvation will be realized in full display. The main theme in verses 3 through 5 is that believers should bless God and praise God because of the certainty of their inheritance and for a living hope that they have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in verses 6 through 9, Peter now focuses on the joy of their salvation that fills the lives of believers even though now they are suffering. Salvation and joy are then the themes of Peter's heart as he pens verses 5 through 10. Now, he mentions salvation in verses 5 through 10 three times. In verse 5, he says, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 9, the salvation of your souls. And in verse 10, concerning this salvation. Three times. And then you'll also notice in these verses, he talks about their joy as well. In verse 6, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. And at the end of verse 8, he says, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Now, this isn't unusual. In fact, throughout Scripture, those who have put their trust in Jesus have always been described as being filled with joy or joyous or joyful. For example, in Psalm 51, we see this throughout the Psalms, in Psalm 5, verse 11, excuse me, says, but let all those rejoice, let all those who rejoice put their trust in you, let them ever sing for joy because you defend them, and let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Or how about in Psalm 9, verse 2, which says, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O most 
high. In Psalm 32, verse 11, it says, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We also see, for example, in Isaiah 61, verse 10, where it says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall free from them. Even during the angelic announcement at the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, remember what he's described as bringing? It was the good news of great joy. The Apostle Paul also linked joy and salvation together when he wrote to the Thessalonian church, in spite of severe su suffering, they welcomed the gospel message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, a fruit given by the Holy Spirit. Now, the sum of all of that is simply to remind us that authentic, true joy is the result of God's gift of salvation. The joy received as the fruit of the Spirit is not some brief or shallow or circumstantial emotion, but rather something permanent and profound. Maybe one of the truest signs to tell an authentic Christian is by the joy that you see on their face. Joy. Love joy. Romans chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have been reconciled with God, which produces joy. Therefore, all of us who are saved should continually experience on some deeper level the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Nehemiah and Ezra said as the people weeped as they read the law and they realized how wrong and sinful they had been. And he said, get up and rejoice, eat and be merry. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, it needs to be said that there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness and joy. Happiness is fleeting where true joy is fixed. You can be going through horrible circumstances in this broken world, as these persecuting Christians were, but still have the joy of the Lord. Because happiness, you know, can go up and down based on your happenings. All right? Um, happiness depends on your happenstance. Um, happiness is all about the hap. Uh, you may know that, that hap is that old word for, for chance or for luck. So when the, the chance falls favorably uh, for you, that you're happy. When it doesn't, you're unhappy. That's all you get out of worldly happiness. True joy, on the other hand, is permanent and fixed. The joy of the Lord is based on what God has already done. Jesus said on the cross, tetelestai, which means it is finished. It is finished. That's how Paul 
though sitting locked up in prison for all of those years, uncertain on whether he would live or die, could still write to the church in Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. He wrote that as a prisoner, chained, beloved. Mere happiness just comes from a positive um, external event. But salvation, joy, results from a deep-rooted uh, confidence that one possesses from eternal life, from the living God, through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could Paul write such a letter soaking with pure joy? That was the letter of joy. We saw him write joy or joyous or rejoicing 20 times in the four chapters when we went through that joyous letter. But how could he write a letter soaking with all of that joy to the church while he was in prison unjustly, you ask? Well, because he believed in the salvation that his Lord had paid for on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished, sealed in his resurrection, and is guarded now in heaven in glory. Paul didn't judge his happiness based on his happenstance, no. Rather, he based it upon the Christ, his Savior. And so that's why Paul could tell the Thessalonians to rejoice always, you see. Rejoice always. No matter what's going on out there, we always have the joy of the Lord in here in the finished work of Christ. Our salvation really is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It's the salvation, you see. It's the gift of the Spirit. Now, before we dig into this text, I just want to remind you once again who it is that Peter is writing to. It's easy to kind of forget the intention of this letter and who the first audience is before we immediately grab it and apply it to ourselves. Who's Peter writing to? These are believers who are scattered throughout the provinces controlled by the Roman Empire, described in the first two verses. They have been blamed for the burning of Rome. They are despised, hated, and rejected by a pagan culture, and were under some very severe persecution. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. You see here the way these Christians were viewed. They were slandered as evildoers. We're already beginning to see this even in our own country. If you speak an element of truth, uh, the truth of God's word, you may just be labeled by someone as using hate speech. That's how far we've gone to. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The implication here is that they were already suffering unjustly and yet continue to endure. In verse 20, it says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example 
so that you might follow in his steps. Christ suffered, leaving an example on how they are to suffer. Chapter 3, verse 9 of Peter. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Tough words here. The implication is is, that they were doing evil to these Christians, and Peter says that they were not to retaliate, that they may obtain a blessing. A blessing. Just scanning through this book quickly, verse 14 of chapter 3, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Down in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If it's God's will that you suffer, it is better for you to do good. 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so as far you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 19, it says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First Peter 5, verse 10 says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, all of those verses let us know in no uncertain terms that they were in a very difficult situation in these provinces. It was a time that was um, that could easily have robbed them of their joy. And so Peter reminds his readers in these couple of verses of five perspectives on joy so that believers may triumph even in the midst of difficult situations. And the first thing that he highlights is that joy derives from confidence in a protected insurance. In a protected insurance. This is the first cause of joy which Peter is going to refer to. So let's look at our verses. Notice in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Let's stop there for a moment. What does he mean in this? He means innovation that we covered last week in verses 3 through 5. In the eternal inheritance reserved for you, kept in heaven, which never perishes, which never will be defiled, and which will never fade away. Because God has promised to you a protected inheritance, 
which is the fullness of eternal salvation. In this, you greatly rejoice. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, it says, remember those earlier days, after you had received the light, when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. And at other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. What an incredible statement. The writer to the Hebrews says, remember what you went through in those early days, when you, when you endured through that, that, that conflict that you went through, full of suffering and persecution. Remember that. And he says, remember when you joyfully accepted the seizure of your own earthly property? Now, how is it that these people joyfully gave up their own earthly houses? It says in verse 34, because they knew that they had a far better and eternal possession, you see. You see, ultimately, they couldn't take his joy away because he lived for a home not made with human hands, you see. You and me here, this, we're like, over my dead body... You're taking my home. Uh, you're not taking this home without a fight. And, and the point isn't about whether or not you're going to give up your home joyfully or not. But it is saying what was important to them could never be taken away. It wasn't earthly. It wasn't of corruption and their joy wasn't hooked onto something in this world. Their joy was in their inheritance that could never be taken away from them. Verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while. He who is coming will come, you see, and will not delay. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus said. I have already overcome the world. Beloved, no matter what your difficulties or hardships or various trials are now you can rejoice but but how could that be how can you have joy while simultaneously be grieving through various trials well peter will answer this further as we go but here he highlights the fact because you have a living hope you possess something better you possess something that lasts longer namely an eternal inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, protected by the power of God, through faith, bought with the precious blood of Christ. 
Christian, in this, in this, our hope is found. In this, your joy is found. In this, salvation you see. It's not in this world. When everything seems to be falling apart, you will always find joy and salvation. So that's number one. Unlike worldly happiness, your joy derives from confidence in a, protect, in a protected inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Peter next turns to a source of joy that has immense practical ramifications for believers. Number two is confidence in a proven faith. Confidence in a proven faith. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith may more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. We'll stop right there. Now, um, you're not going to hear this uh, taught a lot in most churches here in the West, at least. Um, so this might sound a little strange to you at first, um, but here in verse 6 is an incredibly rich biblical concept of God, how God uses trials to add to your joy. <laughs> how God uses trials to add to your joy. Now, the world will tell you it's only possible to experience joy by avoiding trials. By avoiding trials. That at all costs, God, deliver me from this trial. But what if I was to tell you that God uses these trials not only to refine and strengthen your faith, but even proves your faith to be genuine, which then brings you pure joy. Would you believe it? Well, let's look at verses 6 and 7. Peter lists four features of the trials that God uses to prove a believer's faith to be genuine. Now, um, just about everything that you need to know about trials is right here in these two verses. So let's just kind of go through these briefly. Um, principle number one is trials don't last forever. Isn't that good to know? Isn't that good to know? They don't last forever. Look at verse 6 again. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, so it's temporary, a little while is uh, a season. Paul said in Romans 8, 18, For I consider the sufferings of the, this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Even if it lasts a lifetime here on earth, it's going to go away with this life. Your trial won't follow you into heaven, you see. Principle number two, trials serve a purpose. Look again at verse six. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. Now, what, what do those next two words say? Uh, says, if, if what? If necessary. You know why trials come into your life? Because it's what? Necessary. Trials serve a purpose. Now you might say, what's the purpose, God? I don't get it. <laughs> well, let me just remind you of some of the possibilities, and I don't know your life. But how about to humble us? Right? To keep us from becoming conceited. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 about the thorn of his flesh. 
It was to keep me from being conceited. Uh, trials also come to wean us off of worldly things. Trials force us to look to heaven. Trials reveal what we really love. Trials enable us to better help others. Trials come to develop enduring strength in our character. And trials come sometimes to chasten us for our sin. Trials serve a purpose. A little later in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So God has purpose in it. Principle number three, trials bring pain. You ever notice that? Our trials can sometimes be painful. Look again at verse six. In this you greatly rejoice, even now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed or, or grieved by various trials. Now this word used here for distress refers not only to our physical pain, but mental anguish as well. Sadness and sorrow and disappointments. But God uses these painful trials in order to refine us to an even greater spiritual usefulness. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So we're getting into a, th a theology of trials here. Trials don't last forever. Trials serve a purpose. Trials bring pain. And it's supposed to be painful. In order to drive us from, from the world to the Lord. To purge us of sin. And to refine us for greater usefulness. Hebrews 12 verse 6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The fourth and final principle is trials come in various forms. Notice the end of verse 6. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. The word various essentially means there's a variety of them. You might have noticed. We, we go through a variety of of different trials in this life. It's multicolored. In fact, this is the same word that's used in James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. All sorts of trials that we've gone through. There, there's various facets to our trials. It, it, it actually shows it in uh, a visual, in different colors. It's also used at the end, the same word at the end of uh, 1 Peter 4.10, talking about God's varied grace. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Same word he uses. God's grace is varied in the sense that it covers all the various forms of our sins. Gracious. It, it is graciousness. There's one last principle I do want to share before we move on. And that is that our trials shouldn't diminish our joy. That's, that, that's the focus of what all this is, this is about. Our trials shouldn't 
ultimately diminish our joy. And I want you to uh, see this. Um, notice what it says again in verse 6. I, I, I read this probably 10 times before suddenly it, it hit me bef between my eyes. I went, ah. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Do you see that word, though? Even though now for a little while. How do we have joy and pain, you ask? How is it um, even possible? Look at what it says in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. The great comfort of the believer is to know that his or her faith is real. It's true. You have an authentic faith. Oh, beloved, is that joyous? It's not proving your faith to God. He already knows. It's proving your faith to yourself so you can rest confidence in that faith. You've heard people struggle with their faith before. You know, I don't know if I'm uh, truly saved or not, or, or how do I know if I'm really saved? I've heard this over and over again in a variety of different ways. And when someone asks you that, um, there's a number of things, obviously, that you could say to them. Um, but a lot of times, they're still not confident in, in their salvation after they leave you. But as they personally live life and go through trials, and their faith is tested over and over and over again, that confidence is going to come as that person goes through various trials. It's going to prove it to you over and over again. Each trial you go through, as you are still trusting in God, and you haven't shaken your fist at Him, and you haven't walked away, over time, that's the evidence that you have a faith that's been real and tested by fire, and you know it's real because you lived through it. And when it's been proven, and it's been, been tested, and it's been tried over and over again, guess what happens? You receive joy in your heart because there's confidence in a proven faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God is faithful, beloved, and we rejoice in a proven faith, which to me is far more precious than gold, even as it's been tested by fire. Don't you rejoice in the confidence that your faith is real, it's authentic, and your inheritance genuinely come to pass. I don't know about you, but that's an exciting thought for me. I'm going to heaven. My Lord has an inheritance for me. He's done all the work. I trust in him. So trials prove the validity, the genuineness of your faith. So what a tremendous benefit trials are. Who would have thought? Who would have thunk it? All right, let's go on to number three. The third reason for joy as Peter introduces to us yet Another very important reality, and that is 
confidence in a promised honor. And, and this reality is uh, truly incredible. Uh, notice verse 7. He says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is an incredible truth. Peter is saying here, this genuineness of faith, this tested faith, the, the faith that you know has been tested and tried and refined, that is more precious than gold, and just as men use fire to, to test gold and to refine it, to distinguish if it was real or not, so too, Peter says, likewise, you have been tested through fiery trials and have proven to be genuine. And then he connects their faith. Again, this is one long, big sentence. And he's, so he connects the faith he's talking about in the first half of verse 7 now to the second half of verse 7. And this is really incredible. He says, this beautiful, refined faith that you have will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that, beloved? See, it's not only the joy of a proven and authentic faith, but it is the joy of anticipated reward. This, this is mind-blowing. Peter points here point here is that these believers and all who would come after and all who were before would be found praiseworthy of glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to faithfully serve and praise God in this life. And what he's saying here and in other texts is that when we stand before him someday, he is going to praise and honor us. This is incredible. It's unimaginable. I ask you, beloved, to savor this thought for a moment. To think that someday you'll be seated at the table. He says, and he will serve you? To think someday that we will stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, Jude 24 tells us, and then in reverent awe, we are going to look upon his face humbled and overwhelmed by the light of his glory. And as we stand there clothed in robes of righteousness, which he has dressed us with, bought with the blood of Christ, consumed with speechless delight, standing before our creator, the lover of our souls, he is going to honor us as the text says here, with praise and glory and honor. That's incredible to even think about. I mean, to imagine that we will someday see the Lord and receive from Him praise is just incredible. He gave you the faith. He did the work. And then He's still going to praise the work to you. In the second half of 1 Peter 2.20, it says, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. 
this finds what? Favor with God. Isn't it wonderful to know that you can have favor with God? Apart from the blood of Christ, there's nothing we can do. But covered with the blood of Christ, he mentioned several times of favor with God. In Matthew chapter 25, there's the great sermon of our Lord and his second coming. And in Matthew 25, verse 21, do you remember uh, this statement in the parable of the talents? His master said, and this is to the servant who gained five more talents, and he says the exact same thing in verse 23, to the one who gained two more talents. But he says, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in the what? The joy of your Lord. Can you imagine falling to your knees before your Lord and hearing those words from his mouth? Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. God who alone is worthy of our praise, all of our glory, worthy of all of our honor, will give all three of these to us. When? At the end of verse 7 it says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That refers to the day of the Lord, the time when the Lord returns. He will judge the dead and he will re reward his redeemed, those he's called out of the world, those he died for on the cross. And then notice uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter has this also in mind, as do all suffering believers. They all wake up thinking about this, regularly praying about it. And, and I don't know how often we do, but it says in verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you, again that phrase, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the Lord reveals himself, when the Lord returns. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, he says, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. <laughs> wow. So in your faithfulness and sufferings, keep on rejoicing, keep on praising, so that also at the revelation of his glory, Yes, you will be rewarded by an even greater rejoicing in exaltation. And in some sense, um, our eternal reward, of course, is connected to faithfulness in living and praising God here. We can't earn our salvation, but our rewards are seemingly connected to some of these verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, This is a plain indication. This is about as plain as it can get of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. 
and to give a relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. So in that great day of the Lord, the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus returns, he comes to judge the wicked, to reward those whom he had died for, and we will always be with the Lord, close and intimate communion for all of eternity. We will be loved perfectly and fully and completely without any sin and any separation any longer. And as I said earlier in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the last time. It is an amazing truth that when the Lord returns for his own, not only will we joyfully worship and serve him, but also he will graciously serve us in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just incredible. There's much more to say, but let's move on to number four. Where do we turn to find joy, you ask? A personal fellowship with Christ. A personal fellowship with Christ. And, and I would say that in many ways, this is probably the sweetest of, of all of our sources of joy. Notice in verse 8, it says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of joy. You know, sometimes we like to blame our maybe unbelief or maybe our disobedience by saying, it would be so much easier if I could have lived when, when Jesus lived and, and hung out uh, under the teachings of Jesus and and if I could have just only seen him once. Um, but, you know, that's not really true. That's not really true. Um, Peter is the perfect example of this, is he not? He's writing this because he knows. He was there, and these persecuted believers were not there. And yet he sees their faith. And he's blown away by it. In fact, uh, here Peter's drawing an implicit contrast between himself and his readers. It was his great privilege to have known and walked with the Lord. He led the apostles, one of the closest of the three, with the Lord. Imagine living with the Lord and being under his constant teaching for three whole years. Peter did. Talk about a master seminary, right? Three years of intimate mentoring from our Lord. And yet, what did he do? Peter denies the Lord three times. The very moment hardships come his way. And beloved, we like to think, I never would have done that. But Peter is the, the picture, the representation of all of us. In our weakest moments, we have all sh fallen short one way or another, whether the camera is on us or not. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so here, almost in reflection, Peter writes to these persecuted believers 
aware of his own failures, and yet recognizing the power of the Spirit of God that is now living in the church. And though their faith is being tested, then they're being slaughtered all day long here, he praises these saints for their ongoing love for Christ whom they have never seen. A love not based again on their circumstances, but who Christ is. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom suffered most on our behalf. He is the perfect one who bore our sins on the tree, the one who has called us, the one who has called us out of the, the dead of our trespasses and sins when there was nothing we could do to, to help ourselves. And yet, he chose you and he brought you from death to life. These Christians said, yes, it is a privilege to participate in the suffering of Christ. Where's my cross? Where's my cross to suffer with Christ? But, but why would someone suffer to this extreme for someone that they've never even seen before? One word. It's in verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you what? Love him. Love. And this love here is the, in the present tense, which just indicates that they were constantly loving their Lord. And love really defines the essence of being a follower of Christ. In Ephesians 6, verse 24, the last verse of the chapter, in another book, Paul says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That's where real joy comes from, having an intimate, personal relationship with Christ. Why is their joy inexpressible and full of glory? Well, there's two things there in verse 8, because you love him and because you... Believe in him. Those two aspects are essential to the believer's relationship with Christ and are vital to the joy that results from it. The more faith can know Christ personally, the, the more such knowledge possesses the heart, the stronger the believer's love for him becomes. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, but the goal of our instruction... Here's the goal of our teaching. Is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul says that should be the goal of our instruction. Now, before we move on, I do want to cover that last line in verse 8. There's some good stuff in there. See that word, inexpressible? Um, joy, inexpressible. It's an interesting word here in the Greek. It literally means higher than speech. <laughs> Beyond what speech can do. That kind of inexpressible joy. And so what he means is, is those who live in this personal communion with Christ experience a joy so divine that humanly speaking, they can't even communicate it correctly. And have you ever been so overwhelmed by the graciousness and the mercy, the loving kindness of our Lord, that you have no real words to accurately 
describe the gratitude and joy that's in your heart? I pray that you do, beloved. Peter's readers enjoyed that intimate love for Christ. That's why he says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. And then notice at the end of verse 8, the joy is also full of glory. Glory is from the word, the doxodzo, it's where we get the word doxology from. Verses, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 is a doxology. It means to render the highest praise, a, a doxology, a praise, an, an overflow of praise to God from the depths of our spirit and from the joy of our redeemed hearts. I just pray that you experience this true joy through personal fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His Spirit. Again, there's so much more to say. We'll move on. Our final point, number five, we can constantly experience joy because of a present deliverance. A present deliverance. Look at verse nine. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Here, Peter is not looking at the future, but at the here and now. One could literally render obtaining, presently receiving for yourselves. The word obtaining here is actually really important to, to read this correctly. It comes from a root word that means to receive what is deserved. It is flowing out of believers' personal fellowship with Jesus Christ, and it's the result due them the present outcome of their faith, namely the salvation of their souls. We are presently saved. You have been redeemed. And child of God, don't miss this. This is so precious. Right now at this very moment, every one of you who have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is experiencing a, a process of salvation that, yes, it, it will continue until you enter into the presence of his glory and on from there. But, but now in here, now in here, he's saying we are presently obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's involved with this? Well, we could go on and on, but it's the process that we're presently going through. Suffice to say, he's sanctifying us through the word of God. Right? The Lord prayed to, uh, in, to the Father in John 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. There's a process whereby God uses his word to conform us to the image of Christ. And not only that, the Father's faithful to love us and to protect us and to uh, provide for us. We read that the Holy Spirit is on an ongoing basis sanctifying us. He instructs us and empowers us for service. The, the Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. He intercedes for us in prayer. All this is in Romans 8. And moreover, the Lord Jesus Christ right now sits at the hand of God the Father as our advocate. He always lives to make intercession for us as our faithful high priest. That's something to rejoice about. There's really no reason for believers to lose their joy when at any time we can tap into all these present and future promises and spiritual realities that we have discovered in these passages. Beloved, presently we have a proven faith, a fellowship with Christ. We've been delivered from sin. We have, been protect we have a protected future inheritance, and we have a promised honor 
Jesus assured his disciples in John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Spurgeon once said, the steps by which we ascend to the palace of delight are usually moist with tears. And then he said, amid the ashes of our pain lies the sparks of our joy ready to flame up when breathed on by the Holy Spirit. Beloved, joy oftentimes comes out of pain. Um, and God uses all the pain that's in this world and he is using it to refine and to purify and to strengthen and to authenticate with true and lasting joy, his own. And beloved, each time something in this world really hurts, God is right there saying, look up, child, look to me, and I will give you rest. I will go before you. I am always with you and will never forsake you. Over and over again, God proves himself to be faithful and each time you go through a trial, you're becoming more and more refined into the image of Christ. Your faith is increasing. It's deepening, broadening, widening, proving itself to be more precious than gold. And on that great day, the great day of the Lord, when he returns, you will fall before the Lord and he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servants. Uh, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so I ask you, what Peter says there in verse 8, though you have not seen him, do you love him? And though you do not see him, now I ask you, do you believe in him? I pray that you do. I close with Acts 4, 12, which says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Confess Jesus as Lord. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross. There you will find him. There you will discover his mercy and his grace. He is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. I invite you to come forward if you need prayers this morning. And please stand up as we sing glorious day, living you love me, dying you save me.